0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Show and this episode of Bigger News. I'm going to be your host today, Dave Meyer. And today we're going to be talking to Natalie Ambrosio Prudhomme, who is a commercial real estate expert at Moody's Analytics. And she is an associate director of research there. And she focuses specifically on climate. And we wanted to bring on Natalie today to this show because climate has been impacting real estate investors forever, but particularly over the last couple of years. I don't know if you all have heard, but I've been talking to friends in California and in Florida, and insurance costs are going through the roof. Some insurance companies are just leaving those states altogether. I've personally been dealing with this a lot in Colorado where there are wildfires. It's been really difficult to even get insurance. So we're going to bring on Natalie today to share some data and information with us all that can help you make more informed decisions as an investor. And I mentioned earlier that Natalie is an expert in commercial real estate. And I think that's important to note because this type of data about which places might see floods or which places are going to see insurance premiums increase the most are things that the big investors, like big institutional investors, like. BlackRock and some big commercial REITs, they're all looking at this data. And so I think for us as smaller, you know, I'm just generalizing. Most of the people who listen to the show are residential investors. And I think the people who listen to the show, no matter how big or small you are as an investor, you should be looking at this data to help you make decisions. One, about the cost benefit analysis of any risk mitigation strategies you might want to implement or two, help you decide where you want to be investing. So with that said, let's bring on Natalie Ambrosio-Prodome from Moody's Analytics. Natalie, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Could you start by telling us a little bit about what you do at Moody's Analytics?
1: So I'm on our economics and thought leadership team within our commercial real estate part of the business. Um, And so I focus specifically on climate change. And so I do research and market outreach, uh, really connecting the dots on climate risk uh, and traditional uh, commercial real estate metrics uh, that our institutional investors and lenders care about.
0: And why do commercial real estate investors care about climate and climate risk?
1: So there's a lot of ways this is really starting to unfold um, that I can dive into. But kind of at the foundation, um, there's both physical climate risks and transition risks, which are both starting to uh, have financial implications. And so just, really quickly I'll define both of those and then we can kind of dive in. Um, but physical risks are things like acute uh, severe weather events like wildfires, floods, uh, individual heat waves. And then there's also chronic stresses that are unfolding over a longer time frame, such as sea level rise um, or water stress and drought. Um, so those are our physical climate risks that are, are threatening real estate assets. And then this transition risks. This is the bucket of risks that we face from the transition to a low carbon economy, and so this can take a few different shapes. Um, it includes like regulations around emissions reductions, as well as shifting technology, and then also consumer shifting consumer preferences and demands.
0: Okay, great. So that that's really helpful in understanding those two different things that you you study and. Are you saying that both these physical and transitionary risks have financial implications for commercial real estate investors?
1: Yes, exactly. Um, And so there's there's different ways that, that this is made manifest, but starting on the physical risk side, there's there's kind of the obvious impacts of if an asset itself is hit by a flood or a wildfire. Um, then there's, of course, lost revenue during the business disruption. There's increasing operating costs um, due to the, the repair and maintenance and All of that. Um, And then there's also some less obvious rippling indirect impacts. So even if the asset itself isn't hit, um, but there's a hurricane or storm in the region, um, so transit infrastructure is down or or flooded, uh, employees can't get to work or uh, supply chains are disrupted. And there's actual there's. Instances of this happening where, like, a manufacturing facility itself wasn't damaged, um, but the employees couldn't get to work um, after a storm, so it had to halt its uh, its operations for a couple days. Um, which of course leads to to disrupted revenue. Um, and so so that's a, a few of the ways that physical risks uh, affect real estate. There's also these. These broader ways such as through increasing insurance costs um, which really has broader implications um, kind of at a market level as as well as for asset value and then just briefly on the on the transition risk side um, there we are seeing a, a rolling out of what's called building performance standards um, which uh, they take different shapes but they're they're typically at, at the city or state level and they uh, put restrictions on the amount of emissions uh, from a building or the energy use of buildings. Uh, and so this, and there's fines associated with going over those emissions. And so again, this is changing the calculus where it's no longer like, yeah, it'd maybe be nice to have a green building. Um, but now it's like, oh, we're, we're going to get fined if we have emissions over a certain level. So this is really a, a financial conversation.
0: I think there's a lot to unpack here. But before, before we jump into it, I just want to Ask who is looking at this data currently? Because we're talking about commercial real estate, and that's your specialty. But are the lessons and insights that you uncover in your work also applicable to residential investors and some of the you know smaller types of investors that make up most of our audience?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think some of the examples we'll discuss today um, are. It's it's pretty easy to see that they are widespread across a, a physical asset, real estate. And I've in the past done research on the climate impacts across different asset classes. So all that to say that, yes, if if anyone is invested in in a, a physical asset on the ground somewhere, um, then, then that's at risk from a lot of these things we're talking about.
0: Okay, great. So I just want everyone listening to know that even though some of the examples we might talk about are about commercial real estate and perhaps larger assets, that a lot of what we're talking about may be applicable to even smaller assets or the things that you invest in. Now, let's talk a, b- a little bit about the physical risk. As a real estate investor, you know, there's always physical risk. So there's always been risk of fire, of, of flooding. Can you tell us what has changed recently and the scale of that change?
1: Yeah, so there's a few different things to unpack here. Um, I'll I'll put a pin in insurance um, because that's, that's a huge thing to unpack, but kind of taking a step back. Um, the like you said, there's there's always been, um, for, for a millennium, people have thought about floods happening next to rivers, and they, we've always been kind of developing when th- with this in mind. Um, the huge um, shift um, in our mindset now is that it's really evident that the past is no longer an accurate representation of what the future is going to hold. So it's no longer... Um, a reliable indicator to say, well, this asset flooded once in the last 100 years, so we should be pretty safe with that in mind going forward. Um, the increase in global atmospheric temperatures is having a, a rippling effect there on on local conditions, um, and it's it's doing that in a way that is really changing the in the frequency and severity of these events like storms and floods and temperature, extreme temperature events.
0: And is that happening universally across the country or is it located more in certain areas?
1: It is a global cl- uh, phenomenon, this this climate change trend. However, the way that it um, impacts uh, conditions uh, varies uh, locally. Um, and so we do work um, at, at Moody's. Um, we at Moody's acquired um, RMS, uh, the, the catastrophe modeling firm, uh, and some other um, climate risk providers. And so we really leverage uh, an array of data sets, um, in, including uh, global climate models and more local, um, like hydrological models and things like that, um, that really try to help wrap our heads around and, and communicate to, to the market around what the changing conditions are like at a very specific
0: location. And so certain areas, may have a major increase in risk and others may be less so, correct? I always
1: get the question, um, okay, like you study this, where should I move? Um, and I typically say that, yes, there are some regions that tend to be less exposed, at least to the the hazards that we have a visceral visceral reaction to, like hurricanes or wildfires. Um, there are areas, so the upper uh, Midwest um, or the Pacific Northwest, um, there is some wildfires in the Pacific Northwest, but those areas tend to be less exposed to these visceral hazards. How held- However, my, my first answer is usually it's more about picking your climate hazard um, because it it's, would be very hard to find a place that's not exposed to any of these changing conditions. So, yeah, you might be trading uh, more intense precipitation uh, for wildfires or, or things like that. So it's really a matter of choosing which one you Want to prepare to to deal with and and build resilience too, if that makes sense.
0: It does. So, so would it be fair to say, as an investor, your approach should be just to try and understand the risks as best as possible, because then you can. Mitigate them.
1: Exactly. Yeah. The first step is leveraging, really thinking about forward looking, leveraging forward looking data um, that shows you how your assets are going to be exposed to these changing conditions. Um, And then exactly um, figuring out what to do about that risk.
0: So now that we understand why this climate data matters for investors, we're going to get into first and foremost how you can access this information and boil it down to numbers that apply to your real estate decisions. We'll also talk about some of Natalie's guidance on how to navigate the increasingly complicated insurance landscape, and we'll talk about what smart investors can do to stay resilient after the break.
2: What's better than low money down? No money down. Now through Rent-to-Retirement, you can buy a brand new construction, turnkey rental property for no money down. Wait, hold on. This can't be right. I need to double check with Zach, Rent-to-Retirement CEO. Oh, hey, Rob. Zach, how the heck are you selling turnkey rental properties for $0 down?
0: (laughs) It's not that complicated, Rob. REI to 33777 to learn more about how you can get started investing with no money down today. Get
2: your next new construction property at a steep discount or invest with no money down. Head to rentoretirement.com today. Passive income without the property headache? It's possible.
0: Welcome back, everyone. I'm here with Natalie Ambrosio-Prudhomme, an associate director of research at Moody's Analytics. And right now she's walking us through her latest research on climate and how it impacts investing decisions. So how could a, you know, a small, medium-sized real estate investor start to understand some of this data and how it might impact their portfolio?
1: We have tools and there's other tools out there um, to, 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 where in just using ours as an example, you can put in an address or, or upload a portfolio of dozens or thousands of addresses um, and receive back information on that exposure. And there's two components to that in, in our data. Um, there's the exposure layer, which shows you based on its location and, and the broader area, how an asset is exposed to these changing conditions we've been talking about. Um, and then there's an impact layer. Um, which shows the estimated average annual damage that that um, asset will will face from a specific hazard. So yeah, you they can leverage tools and really wrap their head around okay, what am I, what is my asset exposed to, and then also what is the financial implication of that? And really having that that dollar estimate can then inform um, very strategic decisions on the investing in resilience or asset level risk mitigation um, because one can look at how much the risk mitigation costs and think about the estimated average annual damage and, and kind of multiply that out over the either the hold period of the asset or the life expectancy of whatever risk mitigation you're talking about Um, and and do some calculations to figure out the best steps.
0: Wow, very cool. So can can you help us sort of maybe contextualize this with an example? So I maybe, if you have another example, go ahead, but I have a, a property I own. It's in the mountains in Colorado, wildfire territory. So how could I you know, use your tool or the data that's out there to better position my property as an investment?
1: You can start by exactly using some sort of data um, to understand the changing conditions at that uh, property. Um, And so Wildfire, it there's lots of different components that contribute to wildfire risk at an asset. Um, there's changing moisture deficit, or so changing precipitation patterns, um, as as well as kind of long-term drought patterns, and then that combines with your burnable vegetation that's in the surrounding area. Um, and so understanding those metrics, uh, and and again, there's there's data sets that combine all of that in, into a number um, that kind of shows you your relative risk based on on those metrics. Uh, and then really understanding your property, too. Um, and so if there's a defensible space around that property, um, so that's when there's a room between the building itself and any vegetation, um, or when different, if there's outbuildings or different things on the property, making sure those are, are spread apart. Um, so there's... That's kind of the first step is just understanding kind of the situation around the exposure to these physical phenomenon and then also what's happening at your asset. And then the second step is is thinking through, OK, so if I am in a spot that really is exposed to these um, this phenomenon that's going to make wildfires, how can I implement risk mitigation measures. And that's why it's just important to understand, like we started with, to understand which risk your asset is exposed to, because it can be overwhelming thinking, I need to prepare for everything climate change has in store. But being able to prioritize based on what you're exposed to then really helps narrow in to, okay, what risk mitigation measures are there? And I can move forward
0: with those. This is super important because as investors, so much of our decision-making comes down to essentially a cost benefit analysis. And when I hear about climate risks and, and, you know, let's just use this example of my property. It's hard. It can be hard to know how much money to spend on mitigation and how much risk you're at, because my HOA in the area does a great job. They offer these, uh, you know, defensible space, which if you don't know, it's basically like removing vegetation near the house so that if a tree, you know, there's no trees really close to the house that might catch and then light the house on fire. Um, but, you know, obviously that costs money. And so it's hard to know, like, is it worth it? Am I really at risk? So it sounds like whether it's wildfires, floods, or any other climate risk, you there is now increasing amounts of data that can help us as investors sort of decide what mitigation approach is worth it and is going to be uh, you know, a positive decision for me over the lifetime of me owning a particular asset.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Having this data that shows the, the financials at risk, um, the cost of, of this potential damage really helps drive that um, resilience conversation in a way that's been a bit challenging in the past.
0: And do you have any sense of like, I, this is probably too broad of a question, but I'll see if I can. If you have any rules of thumb, but is there any data you've seen that shows like how much more capital expenditures that people need to put into their property is you know uh, in, in order to properly mitigate against some of these risks?
1: So I think that is very context specific. Um, so and that's another important part. Uh, And a challenging part of this resilience conversation is that it's very location specific, Um, again, down to not just the characteristics of your building, but also who's using the building. Um, What are the activities happening within that building? All of that influences um, things like energy demand or supply chain considerations. Um, And those are, are key ways that uh, the costs of climate change uh, translate into financial costs. And so I I don't have a number like that off the top of my head because it's very specific um, based on on all of these local factors.
0: Yeah, that, that makes sense. All right. Well, I think hopefully as, as some of these data sets get built out even more, you can start to at least comp some properties and see uh, what, what costs what. Now, you mentioned a really important topic for real estate investors, which is the cost of insurance. Can you just talk generally about how insurance companies, like, is are they looking at the same data? Is this what they're looking at? And is this partially fueling why we're seeing premiums go up so much.
1: Yeah. So we've been doing a lot of work to uh, wrap our heads around the insurance landscape. Um, we, um, similar to, to you, I'm sure, are really seeing this have a tangible impact on, on CRE transactions. Um, where it's lenders are finding that their borrowers are, are struggling to achieve the necessary insurance requirements um, without having premiums that actually present a cash flow risk. So insurers have been pulling out of high-risk areas. Um, some of those that have pulled out of California or stopped writing new policies um, did in fact cite um, increasing hazards as one of the reasons. Um, and so yes uh to to answer your question we are seeing um that this is behind the the changing conditions we've been doing some research on this that i can dive into if if that's of interest
0: yeah i'm super interested because it makes me really wonder about the future of insurance for homeowners or investors in these markets you know in california we're just seeing fewer providers same thing is going on in Florida. I know in Colorado there are certain areas where it's very difficult to get a policy, even if it's for a you know just a single family home, just a place to live. And so it it is confusing about how this might really impact the long term housing market and potentially, like not to be overly dramatic, but I guess if there's no insurance, it could really impact where people choose to live.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. And I I think that's happening to some degree now. Um, definitely not being dramatic. Um, it's being very realistic about what's going on. And so, yeah, and there's a lot of pieces to dive in here. And so just to keep setting the scene, I guess, a tiny bit around what we're seeing. So last um, summer, early fall, we did some research on just trying to understand the landscape of increasing insurance premiums. And so we we looked at the... Uh, line item of of the insurance line item and operating cost data that we had on CMBS uh, properties, commercial mortgage-backed securities. And we did this across our five key property types of multifamily, retail, um, industrial, office, and hotel. And we found that the, there wasn't a clear geographic um, trend in terms of uh, markets that saw increasing insurance premiums. They were really scattered across the country. But we saw that the majority of properties across the country were seeing um, average growth rates, compound average um, annual growth rates of over 5% for insurance. And there were a large share that were over 10% of those CAGRs in the last five years. And um, that was the time frame we looked at. And so that's all that to say that this is, is a substantial issue that's really scattered across the country. Um, and so that's just laying the scene a tiny bit. And then you were asking around um, kind of what's going to happen and, and what the insurers are looking at um, in terms of data and, and their reactions. And so it's really a multifaceted challenge and question because The insurance industry is also, A, fragmented across the different states, Um, and so the markets function fairly differently um, depending on the state that that you're talking about, Um, and they're also, of course, highly regulated. And so, depending on the state and the hazard that you're talking about, there's even been um, challenges in in making it possible for insurers to leverage forward-looking data um, to set their premiums. Um, So, in California, uh, insurers weren't historically allowed to use um, forward-looking models to determine their wildfire premiums. Really? And so, that presents significant challenges, uh, and so there's a lot of conversation dialogue happening right now between policymakers and the insurance industry and um, homeowners or borrowers and scientists even uh, really trying to figure out next steps for this and thinking around changing some of these these regulations Um and just thinking about different ways to to really combat this this question of well, these some areas are just going to keep getting hit. Um, and so are are we going to keep developing there? Um, something needs to give. I think the industry has reached a point where it's clear that something needs to give um, and and now we're, we're working to identify the the way forward.
0: Got it. Thank you. yeah, I think for for everyone listening, this is something really important to watch. Uh, because it it really does have an impact. I have a friend who's a big real estate investor who, uh in Florida and told me he's planning to sell most of his properties because even though he had good cash flowing deals, the increase in insurance premiums has really damaged his business. And there's no end in sight necessarily. Like hopefully things start to slow down, but He told me on a a certain property more than doubled. He had one that almost tripled in a single year. And so it makes it really difficult to predict. Uh, you know, just like very difficult to know. You know, one of the major expenses in your business. Now, so far, if this has mostly been, you know, the big high-profile ones. Just so everyone knows, I've been in California and in Florida, but I imagine, you know, in Colorado, I know there's wildfire risk. A lot of the West, um, uh, there, there's wildfire risk. So, I, I'm curious to see if this if this continues. So, something that we'll have to keep an eye on um, over the next couple of years. All right. So now we're really in. In the thick of it. And we're about to take another quick break. But when we come back, Natalie's going to tell us about what she expects to see in terms of new building standards and how this fits into the bigger picture of housing supply and affordability. So stick around. Whenever
2: I used to travel, I would get that creeping feeling that I locked my back door.
3: Transform your lead generation and deal making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at DealMachine.com/BP. Want to dive deep into commercial real estate, entrepreneurship, leadership, and the
2: economy? Tune into the Walker Webcast hosted by the CEO of Walker and Dunlop. what you really want is passive income. With new investors struggling to find deals or get enough money to buy them and veteran landlords tired of the constant tenant phone calls, is there a better alternative? Actually, there is. Fund your digital wallet with at least $500. Select from 6, 12, and 24-month short notes with annualized return rates up to 9%. Then sit back and let your monthly returns roll in. Join today by visiting connectinvest.com/vp.
0: connectinvest.com/vp. Welcome back. Natalie ambrosio Pradome and I are talking about trends in major weather events and what the latest research means for investors. Let's pick up where we left off. Now, uh, Natalie, I, I want to switch to something you talked about earlier, which is about building and building standards. So you said building performance standards are changing. And I have a lot of questions about that, but can you just give us a little background context on that and how building standards are changing?
1: The term... the building performance standard specifically is is referring to buildings' climate operations or emissions. Um, So specifically, these are related to emissions reductions at buildings um, or reducing energy use at buildings. Um, They take different forms, whether they're actually um, assessing the emissions or the um, energy use, um, but the end goal really is to reduce the emissions of buildings.
0: Are these at a federal level, state level, or how are they implemented?
1: So in the U.S., um, they're rolling out in a fairly fragmented way. In terms of how they're rolling out to date, um, there is what's called the National Building Performance Standards Coalition, um, and that's a group of state and local governments that have committed to publishing building performance standards um, by... Earth Day this year, so in April of this year. Um, and then there's a second cohort who have committed to it by 2026. Um, and and this isn't to say that there aren't any published already. There are a handful of, of cities around the country um, and a few states who do already have um, building performance standards. Um, and so all that to say, it is rolling out in a very fragmented way, um, but we do expect to see an acceleration of this rollout in the next couple of years.
0: And what is the objective of most of these programs?
1: The root objective is to um, reduce emissions of from the building stock. Um, but Buildings' emissions are responsible for a large share of, of cities' emissions, and so these are feeding into their broader um, climate commitments um, that many cities have made. Um, but but yeah, it's it's really focused at the the building itself and reducing emissions.
0: From the little I know about constructing large projects, you know, I, I'm a more small time investor here. When I hear about these building standards, and it, it strikes me that adhering by them might be a more expensive form of construction. Like if, if it's just. Even a more energy efficient appliance, it usually is more expensive or, I don't know, windows, energy efficient windows are more expensive or HVAC systems. So my question is, is the total construction cost going to be higher for these types of buildings?
1: Absolutely. Um, and, And we're thinking of it a lot because a lot of these apply to existing buildings. There's a lot of conversation about around the retrofit costs. Um, to then comply with these laws to avoid the fines. And that's something that we are looking at closely and that, that's what our clients are asking. Is it better to just pay the fine um, or to actually retrofit? Um, and so that's the co- We are talking about cost benefit analysis on the physical risk side. And this is cost benefit analysis on the transition risk side. I will say there's a lot of opportunity in this space to look at all of these numbers and then move forward strategically. And so things like replacing your various appliances at the end of their useful life. Um, and just when it's time to replace them, replacing them with energy efficient versions. Um, and that's just one example. But there's there's ways to really plan this out in, in a strategic way that makes the best use of the, the costs and the benefits. One other thing I'll say on this, um, in terms of construction also, there was just an example um, that I was writing about uh, in boston they did include numbers that showed how much more expensive it tends to be to develop um this this type of very very highly energy efficient um building but then also the fact that it uses um so much less energy that those costs will certainly uh be recouped in the lifespan or or before the lifespan of that building so that the savings were significant, even in light of the increased cost of construction.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Because I think one thing that I think about quite a lot is that there's a shortage of housing in the United States. And there is, of course, this effort to increase the, to reduce emissions or increase in, improve the resilience of buildings. But if that makes it even less more expensive it's already very expensive to build if it makes it even more expensive is that going to dissuade people developers from developing and just further exacerbate the the housing affordability problems that we have right now
1: two things i will mention there one and this gets back a bit to resilience where it is an investment up front um but that the the s- savings are substantial and a kind of the interfacing of both the sustainability or transitionist side and the resilience side um things like reducing energy demand um and Things like that. Yes, they reduce emissions; they're sustainable. But they also prepare for increasing heat waves and surging um, costs we've seen in energy demand um, through the the summer. Um, and so that it's a and, and things like affordable housing or or just any housing. Um, it's it's particularly important um, to ensure that the asset is resilient um, and that those who are using the asset. Um, will will be safe and, and be able to function during these extreme events, um, like power outages. Yes, they create a, a substantial commercial disruption, um, but they also are, are uh, a human health and safety concern.
0: I agree and and see the long-term value of making more resilient, more energy efficient buildings. I think what hangs me up sometimes is the just the details of how the industry works, where it's like, what might happen is the developers who take on the most risk will face increased construction costs while the eventual owners and operators of the building or the tenants of the building are the ones to enjoy the benefit. And so that's what worries me is that there's not an incentive for developers to build if it's just more expensive for them only to save other people money. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. So a few things on that. We are seeing with this increasing demand, um, so tenants are increasing their demand for greener, more resilient buildings. Um, Again, large corporations are um, making climate commitments um, and then need to have their offices or their facilities in buildings that um, allow them to comply and meet their commitments. Um, And so with this um, increasing demand, uh, there is already some research that shows um, the greenium or, or the fact that folks are willing to pay more for these green buildings. And we expect more research to be coming out on that as, as more and more folks really focus on this issue. So that's one, just the relatively simple um, fact that increasingly they will be able to sell or, or lease their, the greener buildings for higher prices. And again, this is already um, shown to be the case. Um, the other thing I'll mention too is this green financing um, and so there are a variety of incentives um, from the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, there's also various rebates and utility incentives. And then there's also things like PACE, um, Property Assessed Clean Energy, um, which is another thing that's, that's rolled out at the state level. Um, and so it's only authorized in certain states, but that's a, a specific financing mechanism for um, green properties. Um, that al- allows for um, the financing to be paid or received upfront without any payment, um, and then it's um, tacked on to the the like the property taxes of the property, essentially. Yeah. Um. That's how it's repaid. Um. And so there is a a variety. It's a fragmented space that that needs to be a little bit better understood, frankly. Um. And and kind of fleshed out and with the resources getting to the right people. Um, but green financing for buildings is is a space that, that can help with this as well.
0: Well, Natalie, thank you so much for sharing your research and knowledge with us. Before we go, is there anything else you think our audience should know from your recent work?
1: Yeah, thanks so much for the conversation. Um, I will just really underscore that we're working hard to connect this exposure to climate hazards with the financial implications, um, really doing work that r- demonstrates the the impact on things like vacancy rate, asking rents, operating costs, and then net operating income. Um, and so I would say this is a, a really exciting and important space to, to keep watching and paying attention to. And it's only going to become more important um, in the coming years. And um, So yeah, thanks so much for having the conversation with me.
0: Absolutely. And if you want to learn more about Natalie and her team's work, make sure to check out our show notes, which you can find below, which will link to all the, the research and report and great work that she's doing. Natalie, thanks again for joining us.
1: Thank you.
2: Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.